Good evening, and welcome to the September 2023 edition of Outbeat News In-Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, next month marks 25 years since Matthew Shepard was murdered in a vicious hate crime in Laramie, Wyoming, and also a quarter century since the Tectonic Theater Project traveled to Laramie and wrote a play about what happened and how the town reacted. The Laramie Project is still one of the most popular plays produced by high schools and colleges throughout the country. And tonight, Greg Purati, one of the original playwrights and cast members from the Tectonic Theater Project, joins us from the University of Arizona, where he's now a professor. And he's brought three of his student actors who will be involved in the production he's presenting of the Laramie Project in just a couple of weeks. So stay with us. It's all coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, September 24th, 2023. <laughs> This is Greg Morelli with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of September 24th, 2023. A Texas school district has fired an 8th grade English teacher for having students read a passage from The Diary of Anne Frank, in which the writer describes her genitals and a lesbian attraction. The Hampshire Fanet Independent School District of Jefferson County, Texas, that's near the coastal region, about 80 miles east of Houston, fired the teacher after she assigned students a reading from Anne Frank's diary, The Graphic Adaptation. The adaptation is an illustrated comic book version of the diary that Anne Frank, a German-born Jewish teen, wrote in the late 1940s while hiding from the Nazis. Anne Frank was 13 to 16 years old when writing the diary. In one section of the graphic adaptation, Frank asks a female friend if she'd feel comfortable exposing their breasts to each other. In the three-panel scene, Frank's friend refuses and they both remain clothed. In another section, Frank walks amongst nude female statues and admits, quote, I must admit, every time I see a female nude, I go into ecstasy. If only I had a girlfriend, end quote. The school district notified parents via email and said that it was brought to the administration's attention that 8th graders were reading content that was not appropriate and that the reading of the content will cease immediately. It went on to say that the teacher will communicate her apologies to students and parents. While district officials said the book had never been approved, it was on a reading list sent to parents at the start of the school year, and the middle school's principal reportedly approved the syllabus that mentioned the book. This isn't the first time that this book has been removed from approved reading lists. A Florida principal removed the book from the Vero Beach High School Library for being, quote, not age appropriate, end quote, after a local chapter of the anti-LGBTQ plus group Moms for Liberty complained that the book was not a true adaptation of the Holocaust and contained graphic and sexually explicit illustrations. And in August of 2022, the Keller Independent School District of Texas also banned the book, along with 41 others that were mostly focused on LGBTQ plus and black characters and called them all pornographic. After a public outcry, the district returned the Anne Frank book to school libraries. The book has been long used to teach students about the Holocaust, and its sexual passages reflect similar experiences that teenagers undergo throughout puberty. And here in California, according to the Bay Area Reporter, earlier this month, and within 24 hours of being sent a bill to repeal it, Governor Gavin Newsom ended California's ban on publicly funded travel to states with anti-LGBTQ laws. It comes several months after the city of San Francisco ended their similar traveler restriction. Under the travel ban, no taxpayer money had been allowed to pay for non-emergency travel by state employees, as well as faculty, students, and sports teams at state colleges, to those states that have enacted anti-LGBTQ laws since 2015. The restriction on traveling to Nebraska had recently been added to the list and was to have taken effect on October 1st. 
Senate President Pro Tem Tony Atkins of San Diego introduced the repeal this year, citing a lack of impact the travel ban has had on halting other legislatures from passing anti-LGBTQ laws since it first took effect in 2016. Instead, now, the state replaces this no-fly list with a privately funded pro-LGBTQ marketing effort in the states on it. It remains to be seen where the money will come from to pay for all of this advertising envisioned by Atkins under the new Bridge Act, as it's called. It instructs the Governor's Office of Business and Economic Development, known as GOBIS, to convene an advisory committee of upward of 10 members to advise on the content of various media campaigns and strategic outreach to communities affected by the campaign. And here locally, again, there are three big events coming up that you don't want to miss. First, Napa Valley College invites you to a special showing of the exhibit Flag in the Map, which features 48 images from around the world of how people are using the Pride rainbow flag for activism, visibility, and celebration. The program will feature a special speaking presentation by Mr. Charlie Beal, president of the Gilbert Baker Foundation, and Cleve Jones, a well-known local activist and author. That takes place on Friday, October 6th. Tickets and the exhibit are free and open to the public. You can get tickets at OutBeatNews.com. And then the next night on October 7th, Napa Valley College will host a reading of the Laramie Project. That's the play about the murder of Matthew Shepard that happened 25 years ago this October. You can learn more about this event at NapaValley.edu. And then don't forget, Guerneville Pride returns this year, happening October 13th through the 15th, with a parade on that Sunday beginning at 11 a.m. You can learn more at RussianRiverAlliance.org. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. The Laramie Project is a play that recounts the conversations had by members of the Tectonic Theater Project following the hate crime murder of Matthew Shepard back in October of 1998. Greg Pirati, one of the original members of the theater company, is now a professor at the University of Arizona, and he's producing the play there this October in commemoration of the 25th year. He's here with us tonight along with three of his student actors. Hey, Greg, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. It's exciting to have you here and especially exciting to have some of your students and the actors from the Laramie Project that you're producing. Uh, So why don't you go around and introduce who you brought with you? Uh, I can do that. So we have Taylor Swingle, who is a junior in the BA of Theater Studies. And we have Leyland Howe, who is a junior in the BFA of Acting. And then we have Bella Santoni, who is a junior in the BFA BFA of Acting. And um, I'll let them introduce their characters, but these are actors in the company. Great. So, uh, Bella, let's start with you. Who are you playing in the Laramie Project? I play Romaine Patterson. Sherry Anninson, Zachy Salmon, um, Debbie the Waitress, and the Jury Four Person. Jury number four. All right. Uh, Leyland, who do you play? I play company member Andy Paris, Jedediah Schultz, Aaron Kripals, Cal Raruka, Phil Labrie, and a smattering of some other smaller things. Awesome. And Taylor, how about you? Uh, I play Matt Galloway, Aaron McKinney, Conrad Miller, Jeffrey Lockwood, uh, Governor Geringer, uh, uh, and Doug Loss. Yeah, wow. And, you know, so many different parts to, to try to get into the heads of. Uh, and I want to come back and talk more about what you've discovered about those characters in a little bit. But, Greg, let's start out with you. Uh, for our listeners who are not familiar with the Laramie Project and your role in it, uh, talk about where it all began. Sure. 
So I'm an associate writer of the Laramie Project. The Laramie Project was was the product of a lot of collaboration with um, Tectonic Theater Project. So uh, we were initially doing another show about another really important piece of queer history called Gross Indecency, The Three Trials of Oscar Wilde. And we had been running in New York for about two years with that play, and it had been quite successful for us as a company. And we were getting ready to close that show. And so we had started gathering and talking about uh, what we might want to do next. And we were reading existing plays. We were talking about concepts for a devised piece of theater. And like every good family system, we couldn't agree on anything. <laughs> Nobody wanted to do the same thing. And then at that point in time, when we were having these meetings, Matthew Shepard was murdered. And um, as you remember, uh, it became sort of the news story of the cycle yeah. uh, back in 1998. And we were all as gripped as everybody else in America was with this story of this young man in a coma at Puja Valley Hospital. And we were all just waiting to see what would happen. And then there were a lot of protests and vigils and political uprisings that were associated with that. I went to um, the event in New York, which we called a political funeral for Matthew Shepard mm -hmm. that, that happened after he had passed. And there was police violence and, you know, a lot of political foment. But while all of that was happening, we were also looking for what our next work would be. And Moises Kaufman, who's the artistic director of the company, said to us, well, Gross Indecency has been deconstructing and analyzing the way that queerness is constructed in a historical event. Can we do something similar with a current event? And we went out to Laramie initially just as an investigation. We weren't even sure we were going to write a play. We just went out. Uh, there were 10 of us on the first trip and we just did interviews and then we came back to New York and we did a moment work workshop. Moment work is a technique that, that we in Tectonic Theater Project developed to create work from what we call non-theatrical source material. And um, we then invited a bunch of our friends from the theater community in New York to listen to what we created. And um, it was at that point when we shared the material with the community that we got a very, very strong mandate back mm -hmm. from the community. You have to make this play. And then we started the year and a half long process of writing it. It must have been terrifying to be in Laramie at that particular moment in time, because I remember it, that town was being cast as a place of hate, uh, not a welcoming place for LGBT people at all, frankly, a dangerous place to be. Was there any talk about your safety in going there? Um. There was some concern about that, and we all agreed that we would work in pairs, which everybody obediently did, except for Stephen Belber, who never does anything he's told. Um, but the rest of us did work in pairs, and we carried this fabulous modern technology called cell phones. We were all like, we've got cell phones, because at the time, people didn't all have them. Um, but I do remember... Lee Fondakowski and I were the first people to arrive in Laramie, and we, we were there a little bit ahead of the company, and we're good friends, and we were having a great kind of road trip experience, laughing and joking around and, you know, getting ready to do our work. And then we, I remember passing, coming over the Lincoln Path uh, from, from the, on the drive from Cheyenne to Laramie, Wyoming, and just seeing the 
the town in front of us. And there was nothing particularly extraordinary about it, but just I remember our kind of levity just sort of trickled away mm -hmm. and there was kind of a chill that came over us. Oh, we're here, you know, in what had been described as, quote, the hate crime capital of the United States, end quote. And of course, what we discovered is that Laramie's just like any other town in the United States, full of incredible people with dignity and and courage and, you know, doing the best that they could in a very difficult situation. And, you know, that had some homophobia in it as well, just like every other town that you walk right. into in America. But when we first arrived, we were a little bit nervous, for sure. Yeah, yeah, I, I can only imagine. Uh, so you write this play and, and produce it. Did you have any idea at the time about the 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 impact it was going to have, the magnitude and the reach? No, we really did not. So, you know, I often say we we were passionate young artists and we cared a lot about the subject and we worked really really hard and we we made what we thought was a very good play. And so we thought, oh, this is a very good play and it'll be nice to get it produced. But then it became this sort of phenomenon. And I, I think that, you know, part of the reason that it became such a phenomenon is that Matthew's story just has an extraordinary power. Yeah. And basically, we told his story, and people find his story incredibly moving. And, you know, I think also because we were associated with um, the work that Dennis and Judy are doing and that the Shepherd Foundation is doing, you know, all of that work, um, that kind of magnificent work that they've engaged in rather than kind of, I think a lot of people would have just collapsed with grief and instead they turned their grief and their anger into real political action. And because our play was associated with the work that they were doing, I think that also, uh, buoyed the popularity of the show and but ultimately i think it has much to do with just matthew's story and also the voices of the people in laramie who are quite remarkable yeah. but we did not anticipate <laughs> that it would be anything like the success that it was yeah well and so much mythology has come out of this story over the last 25 years so many pieces of fiction uh, I think the Laramie Project really serves as a record of the truth. That's one of the pieces uh, that it brings so much power to. Um, it is it is the record of history and um, a recount of that for people who want to know the truth. Um, you had a chance to revisit the story 10 years later uh, in a second play. And I've seen productions of both. The first time that I saw the production of Laramie Project 10 years later, it, I found it to be absolutely chilling. And the scene that was most chilling to me was your recount of your conversation with Aaron McKinney, sort of the, the primary offender in this thing. How did that happen? I mean, you got a chance to sit down and actually talk with him. That's what we talked about when you were last on the show. Uh, recall that for us. Yeah, well, I spent about 10 hours uh, of time with him, and then I, I reduced all of the interview material down into that 11-minute scene. But the 11-minute scene kind of, reads as if it's a complete uh, interview. I will just say before talking about Aaron that, you know, you said that the Laramie Project is sort of a record of history of the truth. And I think 10 years later is even more so, you know, because what happened over the 10 years after Matthew was murdered is that, I mean, many people, Rob Debris, Dave O'Malley, 
a number of people in the community stayed very, very committed to yes. being clear about what had happened in Laramie. But a lot of people in the community, you know, took a different approach to sort of healing their sense of themselves and their sense of their community. And the story got retold a lot in a lot of different ways and in ways that have been empirically proven during police investigations to not have been true. Um, but that's a lot of what the play is about, right, is how communities and people and individuals reclaim and and change uh their story in mm -hmm, order to mm -hmm. kind of live with their image of themselves. And um, that was what was striking to me about Aaron, you know? So Aaron, I mean, one of the powerful things about Laramie 10 years later, I think, is this notion that runs through act one, where we're talking to the community, that these two young men are going to have some kind of sense of the truth beyond what other people might have. And then when we actually meet them in act two, they don't know what they're talking about, you know? And um, I think that's really striking and really chilling. And, and again, it's like each of these young men takes this story and relates to the truth of it in the way that they can tolerate in order to shape the lives they want to make. So Russell's life take, you know, in his life, he does take more responsibility for what he's done in the world. And, you know, he has a very painful existence to living with that kind of remorse. Aaron, on the other hand, who I interviewed, um, doesn't seem to be capable of taking any responsibility for what he's done. And, you know, claims, and I believe him, he claims he's not sure what happened that night. But it all feels like a very dissociated experience that he's having of what he actually did um, during that crime. And, you know, that's that's how he's managed to live with himself, you know, and he's made really poor choices. I mean, it's hard probably to make good choices in prison for life, but he's made really poor choices. And he's, you know, ended up moving further and further away from any possibility of of expressing or experiencing remorse for his actions. And as he does that, he moves further and further away from reality right because right. that you know and so he seems really dissociated to me hmm. yeah. have you had any contact with him since so i i maintained contact with him for a couple of years i actually was really uh, you know father roger in the play the larry project mm -hmm. says mm -hmm. you know you must you must tell your story you must tell your story and i really did feel like it would be useful to kind of draw out more research around Aaron and, and, and make a project about that. And then Dennis Shepard very politely and kindly pointed out to me that I, even though I don't think of myself as the media, we are also the media and legally Aaron McKinney is forbidden to talk to the media because that was part of their, their plea agreement. And, um, you know, Judy and Dennis were like, we don't want to hear from this person again. That's part of why we're recommending that he can not suffer the death penalty is, you know, if we do that, we don't want to hear any further sure. from him. And, you know, Dennis is a gracious man, so he didn't give me the business about it. But he was like, so, you know, you basically broke the law right? <laughs> by talking to him. Um and so I made a decision based on, you know, he didn't say it like that, of course. He's a very kind guy. But, you know, he did say, you know, I just want to remind you that, you know, we had asked that he not be right. spoken to by the media. And so I made the decision to stop 
being in contact with him. Yeah. Oh, well, so a lot of time has passed. Uh, you're no, no longer with Tectonic Theater Project, right? You're a, a professor at the University of Arizona. How did that all come about? Oh, well, you know, at a certain point, it's like, don't don't tell my students I said this, but the business is really hard. <laughs> and at a certain point, I wanted a little more um, consistency. Uh, you know, in the business, it's a very feast or famine kind of situation for those of us who aren't in the kind of elite 1% of the 1%. And so I decided I wanted to switch to academia. And, um, you know, I made that switch and I've, I've been pretty happy here. Uh, so I do a lot more academic work than creating performance work now. Yeah, well, it's it's a good business being a teacher for 37 years. I can tell you it's a pretty cool place to be. Yeah. Uh, did you ever think that you would be seeing the pushback still 25 years later from high schools? Uh, you know, I just read an article this last week about you know a high school that was that was taking some action to prevent the production of this play in a high school. That it's still controversial. It's still a taboo topic that people don't want to discuss. Um, you know, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I'm so interested by it. You know, I feel like it's all part of this sort of, um, you know, conservative strategy, especially around, you know, trans people and transgender issues, because, you know, that can be divisive for people, right? Because people, maybe a lot of contemporary average Americans might not understand what that means to be a transgender person. So it's a great way to drive a wedge of fear into communities. So there's all this kind of litigation and opposition. And, you know, that goes along with the critical race thing. And it goes along with, you know, the anti LGBTQ thing. And I think we just get lumped into this as, as one of those, um, as one of those texts that's super dangerous. And I always wonder if, if anyone's actually read the play who's banning it, because as I look at it, there's really nothing in particular in the play that seems to be super scary. Right. I'd love to like hear the, the students' thoughts on this because I feel like they, they're in the contemporary moment more than I am. Yeah, so I, let's let's talk with you, young people. And I, I don't, if I'm looking at you, and I don't think any of you were alive when this crime happened. Is that true? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. yeah that's okay. So, but let's start with you. I, I'm curious. When did you first even hear about this play called The Laramie Project? So, it was actually in high school. Um, funny enough, I kind of petitioned our drama program to do this for multiple years while I was there. And finally during my senior year, the we got everyone got on board with it and we presented it to the administration as part of the packet of plays that we wanted to present for that year. And to contextualize, my senior year was all like 2020 to 2021. So this was super shut down. COVID um, times, yeah. This is COVID times, this is peak COVID times. And the response from the administration was basically, we want you to do something more lighthearted. Like, we want you to do a funny play, basically. Mm. Um, and it was really ironic because the last play that we had done before lockdown was this really big farce. It was a huge success. It was some of the biggest audiences that our school had ever gotten. 
And they were like, why don't you do another play like that again? And I think that it was just such a big example of the, the communication barrier between us because nobody at that school wanted to work on something super lighthearted and funny. Mm-hmm. I don't think that anybody was, you know, in a, in a place where they were like, we want to make art that makes people laugh right now. We were all kind of like, there's some really serious stuff happening in the world. Um, this is a very accessible play to do, especially, you know, from a uncertainty about lockdown. Um, and to have a response that was so not even necessarily directed at the material of the play, but it was like Greg said, I was like, have you, have we read the play? Like, I truly think that there was just a lack of understanding between what we wanted to work on and what we, what we needed from our education mm-hmm. and, you know, the, the tone of an administration that's kind of trying to, to keep everybody afloat and, you know, maintain the status quo. So. Interesting. Leyland, how about for you? How did you hear about the play? Yeah, I also heard about it uh, when I was in high school. It was when I went to a theater camp over the summer, and there was a performance, a student-run performance that night that I was just going to go spectate. And I sat in the audience, and one of the monologues that one of the kids in this cohort did was Dennis Shepard's monologue. Oh, yeah. And one incredible, incredible, powerful monologue. And at this point, I had no idea what the Laramie Project was. Where I grew up, it was not something that they peddled to us. They didn't expose us to that stuff unfortunately so when i heard this monologue i was like oh my god was this like a real thing and then i i went home that night and i looked it up i was like this is this is horrible and i and it didn't it was unbelievable to me that it was not until then i had even heard of what it was in the first place mm-hmm. um, yeah because where i grew up that's that was not uh like material like that was not necessarily shown to us or something that was really ever spoken to us about ever. Where um, was that? I grew up in Northern Virginia okay. near DC. Okay. So did I. Yeah. So, um, and that's just not the area where they felt the need to express those issues or the things that the Laramie project was trying to fight for. Mm-hmm. So it was a very new experience, uh, first like listening to it, taking it in from someone's performance and then going home and learning about it myself. Right. And just being shocked that it was something that I was never shown, even though it had this huge countrywide like influence after it was released and it was put forward in all these places and got a lot of attention. So it was that was that was it, yeah. Yeah. Taylor, how about you? First of all, where did you grow up, and then and then tell us how you learned about the Laramie Project. Uh, actually, uh, I was born in Texas, but then I'm uh, I've lived in Arizona since I was okay. like one years old. Uh, I've like I uh, have lived in Tucson for the majority of my life, uh, and um, I actually first learned about the Laramie Project uh, in college. It was like when like my like when people were telling me about uh, professors, they were talking about like oh. Uh, one of our professors is Greg Karate. He uh, he like he worked and helped uh, write the Laramie Project, and that was when like and then like obviously like read a synopsis about 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 the play, and then just being like this is a very like very powerful play. Was, but then like when we heard about the opportunity to like perform it and stuff, that I actually like did like a deep dive into it and stuff, and just reading it, it just like 
like again like never hearing about this before and it was like it was like I literally talked to my parents about this like after like after like casting had been done and my parents uh only then told me just like all these stories about like their like about like what they were thinking like during that time I was like mm-hmm. I've never like no adult in my life has talked about this time like ever like in my life I've grown up with queer people like I've uh, I've grown up with queer people I've grown up with uh, trans people in high school and stuff like and like like knowing of just like identity and like how gender expression is uh is like how like it is a personal thing and how uh how it is expressed like it's been a thing I've known like uh for like a great portion of my life but then just hearing about like how like some people like still don't understand it and so that means they don't like it and like how it still leads to that how it is today and it's it's I won't say it's frustrating. It makes me very angry. It's like, well, why did we not like? How do I? How? Sorry. Yeah. I, Scrap. Just how do us younger people like not hear about this like until later in life? Yeah. I, well, and I do think that's one of the things. Another one of the things that has made the Laramie Project so. Um, I don't know. Given it such a size in in the the theatrical canon, is that it it does initiate conversations in communities. So when people, right. you know, see a piece of the play or they they read about it and talk to their family or students who are in the production have conversations at home with their family, um, it it it's a play about listening to people, right? Mm-hmm. And so we listen to these people and then we go out and we say, "Oh my gosh, did you know?" and and it starts a dialogue and a conversation. And I think that's a pretty magical aspect of the culture around the play. Yeah. Well, I, you know, Taylor, I'm listening to you and it, it almost sounded like words from the play, you know, still 25 years later, we're hearing the same kinds of, of conversation, um, which is interesting to me. So it's been 25 years. Uh, Greg, I'm assuming that was the sort of inspiration for doing it now. Yeah. Uh, so let's go around. I'm, I'm really super curious to hear about the characters that you all are playing and which ones you found most intriguing and most interesting and, and what you've learned about them. Because so these people are still around, most of them anyway. Uh, tell us, Bella. Yeah, so the biggest character that I play in the play is Romaine Patterson. Mm-hmm. Um, I could wax poetic about this woman. Um, I feel like I've found such a connection with her and she also kind of teaches me things about myself in a way, um, because she's a person who who really grabs the initiative, like by the horns. Um, she doesn't wait, I guess, for somebody to tell her that she can do something. She just goes and does it. And that's, it's so, um, inspiring to play a character who doesn't ask for a seat at the table like they brought their own chair Mm -hmm. and it absolutely kind of informs you as an actor as well and and looking in your own personal life like where where are areas of my life where I could be a little bit more like Romaine you know Mm -hmm. and that's such a great thing as an actor and such a fulfilling thing um so Romaine has been fantastic and um, 
Zaki Salmon is another character that I play who I have just really fallen in love with. She is such a, a quirky, spunky, fierce Texas lady. And um, I think if I could get coffee with any character I play, it would be Zaki. Really? She, there's never a dull moment. Like, I feel like we could talk for hours and I, I feel like I could listen to her for hours. <laughs> um, she's just, yeah, she's one of those people where I'm like, let's, let's chat. Let's chit chat. Have you had a chance to actually talk with Romaine or communicate with her? No, I haven't. I would love that opportunity. Oh my gosh. That yeah. would be amazing. I don't know if she's still doing the Derek and Romaine show, but uh, she had quite an online presence. And then of course her book is out. Have you seen the book? Yeah, I did read her book. Um, that was fantastic. And it's also so nice that I guess to be able, you know, like we were talking about, we weren't alive for this tragedy. And so it's an odd thing to have to form a relationship with an event that happened outside of your lifetime. Yep. And so that's where Judy's book and Romaine's book especially have been so helpful in you know, trying to form this relationship with this event that feels so distant, I guess, mm -hmm, to us. Because mm -hmm. I'm like, this was four years before I was even on the scene. Um, and and so that's where, you know, I have to give so much thanks to Judy and Romaine for, for taking the time to explain all of those experiences. And it's also so interesting to see their different perspectives on the same things. And it sort of helps you form your own sense mm -hmm. of things. So that's been so incredibly helpful. Good for you. Good for you. Yeah. Taylor, let's go to you. Who did you find in your cast of characters to be the most interesting? Um, I think the most interesting person to obviously like perform is Matt Galloway. Mm -hmm. And it's just more in the, in the sense of just like, like, so, like similar to Bella, just like a thing is like, I think I'd want to be this guy's friend because just in a way, cause like he, like he would just make me laugh and just be like, I like talking to you. Like, you're just uh, like, <laughs> uh, like it was, it was funny. Just like, like obviously Greg has given us like, uh, like ex like talk to us in detail, just like who these people are as who these people are and like how they act and stuff. And so like uh, Galloway out of all, like out of all, like my, like my characters, just things just like, I want to. I I want to get coffee with you, and like, and like, and also just like in a way of just like how he like holds himself and like the confidence he has in like, it, like in himself and like his expression and his like like belief or mm -hmm. like in like like what he believes he knows. And it's like uh, to steal uh, Bella's analogy of just like it like he doesn't have a seat at the table. He stands over the table and just talks to the people, just like this is what I have to say. Yeah, yeah, I can see that, but. But in contrast to all of that, you also play Aaron McKinney, mm -hmm. who's you know clearly the villain in this in this story. What's that been like for you? Uh, McKinney has been difficult in a way of just like a thing of I did not know like at first like first two weeks of rehearsal like I did not know how to like approach him. I tried like reading him over the, like the summer and stuff and like just trying to find like as much as I can to, like have an idea, but it was like like hearing just about like how like his headspace like during like his like interview because we're like we like like during like during during the play we uh we reenact uh part of his like confet like of his confession tape yep. and it's like hearing about his headspace at the time but it's just like 
more of just like a person like I've like I've heard more about how how Aaron is today and it seems to be just more of like a person of like who is does not feel remorse for the actions but uh is unhappy with the outcome of his own actions Mm -hmm. of just like I like just like but also just like while still being upset with the outcome, like just being fully a uh, thing, just like, like my actions were necessary or like my, like, like I hold, I do not feel guilty for my actions. It's like, it's, he's just in a, like a hard person to like, just fully just like, because I don't sympathize him, sympathize with him. It's uh, like, it's harder for me to just like, uh, like approach him. Yeah. Sort of the opposite of what you described with Matt Galloway. Mm-hmm. Uh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, Leyland, how about you? Yeah, I'd say that the character that I was most drawn to when I was looking through all my characters was probably Jedediah Schultz because the interesting thing about him, I found myself relating to him a lot in his less and his more laid back views on everything that was happening. And in that way, I think he represents what a lot of people across the country were feeling when this happened basically saying, yeah, this is a terrible thing that happened, but this isn't really my issue. I don't feel personally involved with this because this has nothing to do with me. I feel like that is something that a lot of people were probably feeling at the time where this is a horrible thing. It's a tragedy, but I don't, this is not, I don't have personal stake in this. This is not my problem. And what Jedediah finds throughout the course of the play, throughout the course of his journey of discovering this issue and what it means he finds that it does it does matter to him. The story, the tragedy of Matthew Shepard is something that very much applies to his life and it can, pl- can apply to anyone's life, whether you're gay, straight, religious or not. It's, it's something that everybody can look on and find the lesson of how bad it is to treat somebody this way. And what makes him also really interesting is the arc that he has throughout the course of the story he doesn't have these incredibly strong, heavy, like opinions and worldviews like some other characters in the play. He goes from he's not really okay with gay people to being okay with gay people and finding the subtlety and making that arc something big because that mm-hmm. arc to me represents what a lot of people like the arc that a lot of people, real people went through when this was really picking up steam across the country where a lot of people were like, this isn't my problem, to everyone saying, this is a problem. And this is the world's problem. This isn't just for the gays. This isn't just for the anyone's. It's for everyone. Right. And that's what's so fascinating about Jedediah's character, is he represents the everyman in that sense. And another character that I uh, was just heartbroken to, to read, to perform, and it breaks my heart every time I have to do it, is Aaron Kreifels. He's the boy that mm-hmm. finds Jedediah in his brutalized state, goes through something that I wouldn't wish wish on my worst enemy. It's a horrible thing to even imagine that a 19-year-old boy just biking through the mountains and finding this absolutely, this horror right, in, right at his feet that he has to deal with now. It's a big responsibility that he was given. And a big part of him is his religious beliefs, his religious background, his strong faith, in God. And if I were to ask him something, I'd ask him, you went through something so horrible. And in your beliefs, God is, 
he puts you through this. God puts you through this, and you're trying to figure out why he puts you through this, and that's a noble thing to want to find out. But I, if it were me, I'd be questioning God's existence. Like, why would he, if God is real and God is all good, why would he do that? Mm-hmm. You know. But Aaron Kreifels, throughout the entire play, his faith in God does ne- never strains. He never, like, is God real? That's never a question he has to ask himself. It's why God, not is God real? And I would ask him, how is your faith still so strong after all that? Because we know that Aaron Kreifels has gone through a lot of a lot of pain ever since this has happened to him. So I guess one of the th- questions I have about each of all each of the cast of characters that um, you're playing that we haven't really talked about yet, maybe specifically, or just about the play in general, you know, your your view and your experience with the play, what's the most significant thing you've learned from your participation in it? Bella? I think for me, this play represents a really interesting process. Whenever we're faced with um, a mirror of our own prejudices, and I think that this is a really small-scale, like microcosmic example of that process when we're faced like we have been so recently in the past with our own prejudices, with that reflection. And I think that there are a couple options that we have. Um, We can disown it. We can seek to minimize it and make it smaller. We can try to explain it and make excuses. Or there's the option to own it. And then where do you go from there? And we see the characters in the play go through, you know, go down multiple or one of those paths. And um, I think in that sense, it's just a very interesting example, like I said, super small scale of what happens on a much larger scale regularly. Mm -hmm. And we see this process repeated over and over again. And especially, you know, we grew up in a very divisive world you know what I mean this is the sort of political environment that we were raised in and I think that one of the questions that you have to ask yourself is how did we get here um because it's an odd thing to to look at the political landscape and you know maybe not understand the roots of of how divided it is and I think that this presents a really interesting example of that process that we can go through when faced with our own prejudices. And I think that it helps at least me start to get um, a little bit better of a handle on, on how we got here today. And I think that that's also what makes it so continuingly relevant. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, divisive political environment, it's not just something you grew up with. You're living it. You're living yeah. it today. Uh, yes. Eileen, for you, as you look at your experience in the play, the content of the play, what are the most important things you've learned? I think the main thing I've taken away from this is we're all in this together. You know, this is this is a whole issue that is spread across our entire world of accepting people that are different from you, or accepting people that believe something different or behave a different way. Um, there is the main thing I pulled away from this is that 
there's unity to be found in this absolutely horrid thing that happened to this person over a terrible reason is that we are a team and like bella said there's a lot of there's a lot of division in the world right now more than i've seen like in a long time and more that the world probably knew existed there's constantly people over media or in person fighting over opinions and fighting over beliefs and what we've seen in the case of Matthew Shepard is that those things only cause tragedy it doesn't cause it doesn't cause anything good and what i've taken away is that we are all we're all together and this is our world this is our community and it is what we make of it it is uh, it is up to us to decide that we can look at each other as friends and seek to find find common ground and find community in our differences or let those differences separate us and and shoot us into these different corners where it's a a boxing match of who's going to win and who's going to knock the other one down and who's going to take the crown and let the other people just bleed out and die you know Mm-hmm. That's that's not a way that a successful or a harmonious community is going to be created. Let's just be honest here. So, yes, you can find the the feeling of unity and the feeling of wanting to be together and wanting to help one another in the case of somebody that had their life their life taken in a truly disgusting way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, powerful. Taylor, what's your takeaway? Uh, well, uh, a lot of what Leland uh, said, I uh, <laughs> I was on my brain, but it was also just the thing of just, I don't know, I, there was a line that uh, Governor Geringer has in the show where it's, uh, we'll wait and see if the vicious beating and torture of Matthew Shepard was motivated by hate. And I think what it seems like, what the logic of today's world is like whether or not the hate is justified and we are like we're like as as leland said we're all just kind of in a boxing match of just like like accepting accepting of just like how like like how just people are just and are like like expressing themselves or just like how they how they just are and versus the people who just don't really understand that and don't and, and just simply don't agree and there are people like there are people who like obviously aren't as violent, but there are people who are violent. But it's just for what it's like, like you hear just more and more news every day, and it's just and like just seem like like we have made great like we've made it's great social strides, but no real political uh, strides and like acceptance. Like we passed the uh, the Matthew Shepard Act uh, in in but like that was 10 years after like the event happened and so like there's still so like all I've taken away is just like like a lot has changed but more needs to be done mm-hmm. that's for sure and you know this is not the last tragedy that's happened I mean I can think right off the top of my head we had the Pulse nightclub shooting and then just uh, a bit ago the Club Q shooting in Colorado Springs Greg, what do you hope to accomplish within your community there with the presentation of this play this year? What, what, what do you hope to, to bring? Well, my hope is that we, we – I'm really moved by everything that the cast members have said. And I think that you know, my hope is that we can 
just create more conversation and more listening in the community because I do agree that um, you know regardless of whether we're talking about you know uh, LGBTQIA plus issues or we're talking about any political issue on the spectrum, um, it is an incredibly divisive time and people aren't listening to each other. Um, you know, and I'm as guilty of that as the next person, right? When I get on my soapbox, I can very easily be like my side or, or, or you know, uh, my way or the highway, I guess is the word I was trying to think of. But, um, you know, I think the play teaches that uh, listening to each other and giving each other the space to actually talk about what is on our minds and on our hearts is actually a way to healing. And I think that... Um, you know, I think about this a lot in this time because I am so concerned with how divided we are as a country. Um, there are groups of people in the Laramie Project who are afraid of certain kinds of people. They don't understand certain kinds of people or their religion tells them that they should disapprove of certain kinds of people. And yet, when they are confronted with the atrocity of this crime, they struggle to see the violation of Matthew's human dignity and they respect human dignity beyond their small opinions and, the, and their attitudes. And then there are other people who don't. And for me, that's the dividing line. It's not about whether you approve of gay people or whether you're okay with what happened. It's about, can you recognize that whether you understand someone or not, that person has inherent worth and human dignity, regardless of whether they're living their lives in a way that you've decided or that your religion has told you or that your politicians have told you they should not be doing. For me, that's the dividing line. And you know, I can be guilty of that too. When somebody at the dog park expresses political views that I find heinous, I can really close myself off to that person and be unwilling to recognize their inherent worth. And I have to challenge myself all the time to say, you know, this person who disagrees vehemently with me, with me has human dignity and human worth. And I don't want to be in the camp of people who just throw people away because mm -hmm. they're not behaving the way I want them to. And that's something that I think everyone can take away from the Laramie Project because the heroes of the play do that. You know, Rulin Stacy says, and as I've told you before, this is not a lifestyle with which I agree, right? And yet he is the most humane and dignified and beautiful person in his response to the dilemma of this family, regardless. And I think that that is, um, you know, that's just a quality that I want people to build in themselves. And I want the show to encourage in the audience. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it reminds me of another question I wanted to ask you as you look back. Obviously, you've maintained some wonderful relationships with the people that you that you talked with originally and then 10 years later. Who are you still in contact with and who still is near and dear to your heart? You know, I'm not in as good contact as I used to be, but Jonas is a friend. And uh, Beth Lafredo, who's in, in Laramie 10 years later, is one of my best friends. I will always have to say that 
the superstar hero of my life is Marge Murray, Reggie's mm-hmm. Reggie's uh, mom. She she passed away some time ago, but I was able to be there. You know, the family very generously called me when she was in the hospital, and and um, they allowed me to come up and and sit with the family uh, right before Marge passed. And Marge was. She was like my spiritual mom, <laughs> you know, and she she was everything to me. And, um, you know, I still think of her all the time and I, I wish she were still here. But, you know, I, I've main connect, maintained connections with the Flutie's and with, you know, Marge until she passed. And um, I know that Romaine may be coming to Tucson for Laramie Inside Out. At least I heard that rumor. And so I'll definitely um, want to get together with her and maybe – Maybe Bella will want to get together with her as well. Um, but yeah, over the years, I've been less in contact, but I still, you know, I still get to Laramie occasionally and see people when I'm there. That's fantastic. So what are audiences in for? I mean, I can't think of anybody better to produce this uh, play in this day and time than you. Uh, what do you, what, what surprises do you have for them? I find the whole play is just a continual surprise. People in the play are completely surprising. I think one of the big surprises, and I hope this is true, um, there's some hard material in the play, but there is a lot of joy in the play. There's a lot of community in the play. There's a lot of love in the play. There's a lot of heroism and poetry in the play. And, um, you know, I know sometimes, I remember when we were doing this originally at Union Square Theater in New York, and a lot of my friends didn't want to come see it. And, you know, you know, a lot of my gay friends would say, I just can't. It's too much for me. I don't want to deal with this story. It's, you know, because it was overwhelming and scary for all of us as a community. Um, and when I would convince people to come, they would always be so happy and relieved. They were like, you know, it's just so different than what I expected. And so it does deal with a huge tragedy and you know we don't shy away from the pain of that tragedy in the play but i think the big surprise for audience is how much laughter and joy and community and love there is uh also in the play and that's what i hope that people will find i'd love to hear what the the students think about you know what the surprises might be without giving away any spoilers right that's the skill of answering this question Well, you don't have to. We don't have to. We don't have to tell anybody any else. Uh, it is a very unique play, and I and I agree with you. Every time I've seen it, it's been very, very different. But I have felt a connection with the audience of strangers that I've been sitting with, and in the end, you don't feel like strangers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's one of the real unique powers of this of this particular play. Where can people go to get tickets uh, if they want to come see it? They can go to Arizona Repertory Theater, the Laramie Project. If they search those words. But it's the Arizona Repertory Theater is the name of the producing entity, and then they can find the Laramie Project there. Great. And we'll put a link on our website at outbeatnews.com. Just click on show notes at the top of the page. And Greg, you've also got a very special event coming up in October with Judy and Dennis Shepard. Tell us about that. October 19th, um, Dennis and Judy Shepard will be coming to Tucson, and we are doing an event called um, The Legacy of Matthew Shepard, Then and Now. And we're going to have some community activists here from Tucson, Um, Lisette Trujillo and her trans son, who've done a lot of 
activism in the community around the you know, anti-trans legislation. And then the shepherds are going to talk about the activism and advocacy that they've done over the many years that they've been fighting the good fight. And that's going to be an incredible evening at the Gallagher Theater at the Student Union on October 19th at 7 p.m. Wow. That'll be very, very special. If you can get to yes. Tucson, that would be definitely an event to go see. I just can't even thank you enough uh, as a board member of the Matthew Shepard Foundation uh, personally for helping to keep this story alive, for helping to keep the truth alive amongst all the mythology that's out there. It's such an important production. I'm so excited about everything that you've learned and that you're getting from it personally. And of course, Greg, congratulations to you and, and thank you for all the work you've done and continue to do. And we can't thank the Matthew Shepard Foundation enough for all the incredible work that you do. I mean, we are so lucky you're in the world. Awesome. Thanks for being with us tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And that wraps up our hour. Don't forget to join us on Friday, October 6th at Napa Valley College for the Flag in the Map exhibit and speaking program featuring Charlie Beale from the Gilbert Baker Foundation and local activist and author Cleve Jones. Details and links for free tickets are on our website right now at OutbeatNews.com. And tune in next Sunday night for Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCB Radio. In the meantime, do have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News In-Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia. Our shows are available for on-demand play anytime on our website at OutBeatNews.com and on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and now on iHeartRadio. Find links to subscribe at OutBeatNews.com. I'd love to change the world, but I don't know what to Broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round, and you can't find a fighter. But I see it in you, so we gon' walk it out. Move mountains, we gon' walk it out and move mountains. Support for Outbeat Radio on KRCBFM comes from listeners and from Rocky, the free-range chicken, and Rosie, the original organic chicken. Air-chilled, non-GMO, locally raised right here in Sonoma County with no antibiotics ever. More information is available at rockyandrosie.com. You're listening to 104.9 KRCBFM Roner Park and KRCGFM Windsor, Sonoma County's NPR station. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Beale Street Caravan is next.